Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative, a Boyer-inspired national consortium of leading research universities dedicated to strengthening and, if you will, reinventing undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandino, Executive Director, and Liz Mock, Assistant Director, and we come to you from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, the host of the Reinvention Collaborative. Today's guest is Dr. Oyan Poon, Assistant Professor of Higher Education Leadership and Director of the Center for Racial Justice in Education and Research, or the RISE Center, at Colorado State University. Dr. Poon's research focuses on the racial politics and discourses as they relate to college access, higher education organization and policy, affirmative action, and the experience of Asian Americans. Prior to joining the faculty at Colorado State University, Dr. Poon was Assistant Professor of Higher Education at Loyola University, Chicago. After earning her bachelor's degree at Boston College and master's of education in college student affairs administration at the University of Georgia, Oyan worked in multicultural student affairs, including as the first Asian Pacific American student affairs director at George Mason University and the first student affairs officer in Asian American studies at UC Davis. She earned her PhD in race and ethnic studies in education and a graduate certificate in Asian American studies at UCLA where she was also elected president of the University of California System-Wide Student Association. Welcome, Oyan. Thank you. Glad to be here. And one minor correction, as of today, I am associate professor. Hey! Oh, congratulations! Whoa, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Good news. Mm -hmm. Well, we want to discuss difficult subjects, quote unquote, which is the title of you and Badia Adhad Lagardis, forgive me for mispronouncing, 2008 edited Stylus Press book. But first, may we ask you to just tell us a bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? What led you to go to Boston College as an undergraduate student? How did you eventually become immersed in the study of higher education? Sure. Happy to share with you. I was uh, born and raised in Massachusetts. My parents are Chinese immigrants from Hong Kong, and we somehow ended up in Western Massachusetts, so an hour and a half west of Boston. And it was not the most racially harmonious place for an Asian American girl to grow up in. And I was itching to get out of my hometown for years and years and saw college as my kind of escape hatch from the community I grew up in. And I didn't want to go too far from home. And Boston College took a chance on me. I didn't have the greatest academic background, but I think it was partly their Jesuit mission to look for someone who was, you know, students who were interested in leadership for social justice. And there I was with mediocre academics and a real passion for social justice and a commitment to that work. And yeah, they gave me a scholarship and the rest is history. And even though my parents really wanted me to go to UMass Amherst, which was even closer to home, I think the finances actually worked out slightly better to go to this private university. So that's what led me to BC. And yeah, it's a little bit about my background. And from there, it was my experiences as an undergraduate student at BC that led me to decide to study higher education. I was a marketing major there. 
not exactly the most enthusiastic marketing major, but was I, I <laughs> primarily majored mostly, I think, in student life and activism. <laughs> and I took an ethnic studies class as a junior that completely changed my entire world. I was also a resident assistant that same year where there was a lot of conflict on campus over questions of racial justice and campus climate that just fascinated me. And I got really active at that point in these questions. And by my senior year, I was pretty sure that I didn't want to go into a career in marketing, in corporate marketing. Although had I done that in 1998, I probably would have been very financially well compensated with the (laughs) dot-com boom just taking off. But instead, I decided to pursue what my heart was leading me towards, which was really delving into these questions of higher education, things that I was seeing on campus as a student, conflicts and possibilities for a more just society. And so, yeah, there you have it. That's how I ended up starting my career path. I think a lot of us who get involved in undergraduate education do so because we are ourselves were so affected positively by it. BC is such a great school for the, in that way. You and your aforementioned co-editor entitled the introduction to difficult subjects thusly, when the shit hits the fan, <laughs> do we throw out the lesson plan? Catchy? Uh, let's stipulate for the sake of argument that we do indeed live in an S-storm, Uyan. Uh, what should be educators' principal response to yeah. our current situation? So Badia and I were both Badia is still at Loyola Chicago. She's in the English department, wonderful friend and colleague and mentor to me. And shortly after the 2016 election, she and I were just having our regular meetup. And, you know, we had done this regular meetup for many years. And prior to the 2016 election, there were there were things like Ferguson in our home city of Chicago. There was the Laquan McDonald trial going on. And, you know, Baltimore and just all these things, this turmoil in our world and and school shootings and so on and so forth. And I think by 2016 with the election, she and I were just like, how do we, we were just ending up talking about like, what do you do when, you know, as teachers walking into the classroom, we just feel this heaviness and emotionally drained and not fully present emotionally and mentally to engage our students in class. Like, if we're feeling that way, we knew that our students were feeling that way as well. And so could we actually go through our usual lesson on higher ed finance or, you know, shared governance structures in higher education? You know, I just didn't feel fully present. And so we, she and I decided to crowdsource essentially and make it into a publication and hopefully a resource for other faculty and all kinds of disciplines to think about teaching in this world of precarity. And so the answer to that question, do we throw out the lesson plan? I think oftentimes it's a yes, but it's not an entire throwing out wholesale of the learning objectives that we set out for the term in our courses. We found that it's absolutely necessary to acknowledge that those of us who are engaged in the classroom as teachers and students or, you know, I, I still consider myself a student with my students because I learned so much from them. 
it's necessary to acknowledge our humanity, first and foremost, that we are whole people and that the world around us is affecting us and makes it hard for us to come into a classroom and be fully present with the specific lesson plan that had been set out. So in order to really make a course successful, I think the educator's response really needs to be to first acknowledge our humanity, our full humanity, our full selves as teachers and students. And so oftentimes I will throw out what I had thought about as the lesson plan that day, but I often would still connect it obviously back to the course objectives eventually. But yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't find it possible to be my best self as a teacher or an educator if I don't acknowledge things like, you know, last year there was the Las Vegas shootings. Some of my students, because I teach distance now as well, online synchronous courses, some of my students were in Las Vegas. Oh. You know, they live in Las Vegas, they work in Las Vegas. And so to not acknowledge what they were going through would have been completely irresponsible and unethical as an educator. And we spent most of that class talking through and acknowledging you know, what everyone was feeling and thinking and, and how it then eventually, you know, the conversation would connect back to, okay, what does this mean? What are the implications then for higher education in these spaces of higher education and the mission of higher education and, and what the responsibility of educators is? One thought that just jumps to mind is that it really emphasizes the role of an educator uh, as in a relationship with students. You know, you're not just mechanically there to deliver content mm -hmm. and expertise, but you're, you know, relating to them in a particular context as more than just a one-sided relationship, but as whole people. Right. And I think when we do that, our classrooms become so much richer. The conversations and the dialogue get so much deeper, and there's a trust that gets formed as a, a learning community where students and teachers, I think, we're allowed to then feel safer to take risks, risks in learning and risks in this project of education. So you've done a lot to advocate for and amplify the voices of those who are systematically marginalized, whether it be students in the UC system, via your service as president of the University of California Student Association, advocacy for establishment of the federal Asian American, Native American Pacific Islander serving institution designation, or co-founding the Chinese Americans Reimagining Leadership Summit in Boston. What drives your scholar activism and what advice would you give to others who would like to follow in your footsteps? I think it goes back to my motivation is really recognizing that education is not just, you know, as much as perhaps the Gates Foundation or people like Senator Marco Rubio want to push it, this neoliberal mm -hmm. agenda of like college as vocational training for the moment. I see education as a very John Dewey, Paulo Freirean type, you know, mission where it's really about participatory democracy and a, you know, it goes back to that acknowledgement of our humanity as a society, as people. And so that's really driving me is that there are tons of social problems in our world, whether it be climate change or racial injustices or sexism, misogyny, so on and so forth. If we are ever to, you know, address those problems, I think we need all hands on deck, right? And all kinds of talent on deck and, and ready to go and leading, leading and driving the solutions. And so I think that's really 
part of that's a big part of what motivates me. Um, I think also now as a mom, I look at my daughter and I think about what kind of world we're passing on to her generation. And I know it sounds kind of cliche. And as I'm saying this, I'm like, oh, can't believe I'm saying this. But I mean, that's that's really what it is. It's it's a very deeply personal motivation. And and like I said earlier, as we were talking about earlier, it is those personal experiences and reflecting on those personal experiences that drive me. My mentor and advisor as a PhD student was Don Nakanishi. He passed away a few years ago, but when I was struggling with my dissertation topic, he turned to me and he was just like, you know, a lot of, he said, the best dissertations I've ever seen have, have a deeply, if not obvious, it's still there, personal biogra- autobiographical driving force. And so I think growing up as an Asian American girl in a very racially hostile environment, you know, is a real driver for me in in the work that I do. And I'm able, you know, with these migrant detention camps, with these children separated from their families, I think, you know, it's just connecting to that deep emotion and knowing that the work that I'm doing is, it's not just a job for me, it's, it's a personal mission. And so yeah, it's it's I think it's that tapping anyone who wants to do public scholarship, it's it's really tapping into your own personal story and why why you do the work you do. Why are you why do you want to say something? Why do you need to have your voice amplified or your work amplified? And how are you then contributing? Because I'm not about, you know, a superhero approach where it's just this one person swooping in. It's really about building a community of folks to make the world better through education and through higher education. We have a deep responsibility in higher education. Not everyone gets to participate in this project. And so we really need to question that and reflect on that. You know, oh yeah, and I was reminded of a line from Adorno listening to you just now where he equipped the splinter in your eye makes the best magnifying glass. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of connects to the, the, the pain you experience in your biography you're translating it into a political action-oriented form of pedagogy and other life work. Yeah, it's, I, don't, I don't know that's anything to apologize for. We've been doing that a while, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love that quote. <laughs> so thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a good yeah. one, isn't it? The, the, I'll repeat it. The splinter in your eye makes the best magnifying glass. It's, yeah. from, it's from his Minima Moralia. About 1951. That's great. So going back to difficult subjects and working with other educators and students, what if a mathematician or chemist reads difficult subjects and thinks to themselves, despite selections explicitly addressing STEM fields and the following sentiment, no, it doesn't matter who my students are. Chemistry is chemistry is chemistry. Math is math is math. What's your reply? Yeah, um, read Dr. Jen Fang's chapter in our book. <laughs> um, <laughs> first and foremost, you know, because I think she's one of the two authors that offers a STEM perspective in the book. And she starts out with the affirmative action cases and the Gruder cases and the Fisher, uh, Gruder case and the Fisher cases. And she starts out, you know, I think the question that you are articulating is exactly what Chief Justice John Roberts articulated in the Fisher case. So (laughs) um, 
I'm not particularly aligned with his political ideologies. And so I, I don't know if many faculty out there are, but think on that, you know, <laughs> if you disagree with someone like John Roberts quite often, um, and he's articulating the same exact question, you know, what does it matter, the racial diversity or composition of my students in a physics class, right? The theory of relativity is still the theory of relativity, is a very superficial and I think problematic suggestion or question that doesn't get to the real crux of the project of higher education, right? What is the purpose of higher education but for the process of teaching and learning and really cultivating critical problem solving skills. And so Dr. Fang goes through and says, you know, in science learning, there has been a very traditional approach of just this very didactic one directional banking education process where students are just assumed to have no knowledge base. But as she breaks down with, you know, research and scientific research and STEM learning research, she demonstrates how that old model of lecture, drill and, you know, drill and kill is not an effective way to cultivate problem solving skills, cultivate leadership in, in sciences. And we certainly need much more critical thinking and leadership in this, in the STEM field, right? And so I think, you know, Dr. Fan does a, a, a lovely job really solid, you know, presents a really great argument with evidence, substantiated argument about the importance of how modern science in STEM learning has demonstrated the need for a more student-centered or active learning model. And so for active learning models, we need to have diverse perspectives in a classroom. We need to have diverse students bringing forward unique and different questions. And so unfortunately in higher education, we are more and more privileging, you know, economically privileged students who are predominantly white. And so not to say that those students cannot bring different perspectives, but there are a lot of different questions in the sciences that need to be considered that might not ever get brought forward without that diverse composition in the classroom number one, and just the, you know, the learning educational opportunities that are missed when you don't have those students in the room. But secondly, what's more important is that, you know, STEM educators, like all educators, we need to know how to engage that diversity, to take advantage of that diversity in our classrooms well and and done not in a way that is harmful. I'll just give you a quick example. Recently, I was in a conversation with some students about their stats class. And, you know, in stats, you have stats of all kinds of things, but, you know, when when stats are being taught, it's usually better to bring in kind of case studies and narratives and, you know, stats are still numeric stories, right? And so when you have questions of, especially in education, of inequalities, right? Statistics of inequalities. If a teacher is not able to engage in difficult subjects, the classroom can become a complete mess. And, you know, trying to teach p-values or <laughs> multivariate whatever, I'm not a quant person, so sorry. <laughs> um, but 
multivariant, multivariant whatever. Kind of whatever. I, I, I was reaching, <laughs> couldn't find it. But you're not, as a teacher, you're not going to be able to get that lesson plan done that day if basically you have half the class up in arms over something they feel is very offensive or another student in the classroom has said something to offend other students or to, to demean them. And so if you're not able to adeptly handle and manage that classroom scenario, your lesson plan and your course plans are probably out the window. That's a great mm-hmm. point. It really is. You know, I'm saying I'm holding the book, Difficult Subjects, and I realize we haven't shared the subtitle, which is Insights and Strategies for Teaching About Race, Sexuality, and Gender. And it leads me to, you know, pose a question about the concept of intersectionality and the reality of intersectionality. It's I'm so old, not Liz, but me. I remember a time before we even had that concept available to us. And it's developed a great deal over the last few decades, thankfully. And you've been a part of that. And it's I if I'm reading your work properly, it's critical to your work. Could you talk a bit about the concept? How should it inform our thinking about higher education? How should it, you know, you could go any which way you'd like with that. You might be focusing on pedagogy, but also admissions, also, you know, the way we sort of organize the entire campus community at its core. And I'm particularly interested in if you feel behind that concept that there are some identifiable utopian impulses and ideals which people maybe uh, forget about sometimes. And and I'm also then on the other side, really interested in the practical implications of the use of intersectionality. Yeah. With that ridiculously broad <laughs> question, what would you say in response? Um, first and foremost, I need to credit Kimberly Crenshaw, who was the scholar who first articulated and defined the term intersectionality. And if you want to look up more and learn more about this concept, she's done a few TED Talks and interviews on intersectionality, I think over the decades, it's been about three decades since she first articulated it. She's a law professor, I believe, at both Columbia and UCLA. And, you know, she first articulated the notion, particularly around Black women's experiences, that not only do Black women face racism, but they also face sexism and misogyny, and that it's about the systems of racism, right? Structural systems of racism and structural systems of sexism and misogyny. And together, these systems intersect to really form the specific oppressive structures around Black women's experiences. And so that was really what her initial article, I believe, from the 1990s, early 90s, maybe earlier than that. I think maybe 89, Uyan. Yeah, Yeah, so it's exactly 30 years. But since then, I think people have kind of misinterpreted the notion to mean multiple identities. So I am an Asian American, I am a woman, rather than looking at how racism impacts me as an Asian American, how sexism comes together with racism to affect and shape my experiences as an Asian American woman, how classism or, you know, capitalism structures my life now as a middle-class person. How do all these things, all these systems, right? The focus needs to be on systems. So I want to be sure to be clear that it's not necessarily about multiple salient identities. 
or demographics, it's really about these systems and structures of inequality and oppression that need to be spotlighted and analyzed critically to be deconstructed and unraveled. So the utopian impulse then becomes, you know, how do we unravel those systems for a more just society, right? Because if we don't look at the systems and we're just looking at the symptoms, then we'll never get at the actual systems that produce these inequalities and unjust experiences and inhumane dehumanizing experiences. So that's kind of the utopian impulse behind it. And I think practically, you know, I think it comes down to if higher education is, you know, it is still a very complicated structure organizationally that then tends to exclude way more people than it should. And if that's a problem, if we see that as a problem as leaders, then we need to deconstruct those systems and understand. And, and this is what I try to teach my students is to, to really critically analyze, problematize these systems and how they actually manifest in our day-to-day work and do something about it, really. How do we then really marshal our attention and, and leadership and do something about those systems to unravel? So for instance, my work is very much around selective admissions and college access. And I think sometimes there's a lot of conversation in the field of admissions about test score bans. So the College Board publishes each year, for instance, on the SAT, the the median range, median scores and ranges for different racial groups. They also do it along sex, but they don't uh, and I think I believe they also do it along income as well. However, they don't bring those three things together. So, for instance, I grew up as a working class Asian American. So my test scores pretty much reflect that. My first SAT was a 1040, which on a 1600 scale in the early 90s was pretty much smack dab average for the whole country. But the Asian American average was several hundred points higher. And that reflected the class diversity among Asian Americans taking that test. Now, if I was to be compared to my Asian American peers, my 1040 score was crap. (laughs) Right. And this is why I'm like Boston College took a total risk on me. You know, but unfortunately, the reports that the College Board brings out every year, they don't allow for that intersection of class and race. They don't allow for the intersection of sex and race or, or all three, right? But, and, and we know from research that all three of these systems of, of classism, sexism, and racism really do affect the educational opportunities, first and foremost, for diverse students and eventually the outcomes. And so on a very practical level, in my particular area of research expertise, this is a problem. And so how are we really fully assessing? I, I don't think a 1040 score on a 1600 would have ever predicted that I would be a tenured professor today. You know, And if not for right. somebody in the admissions office at Boston College or UMass Amherst, or I was also admitted at Tufts University saying like, let's take a chance on this person, right? Like let's, Let's recognize that this girl came from a particular background and she's doing the best that she can. And she's done a lot more than she should have. 
And so let's see if what she might do with a college degree. Yeah, I think the research is pretty clear, don't you, that the use of standardized test scores has virtually no yeah, legitimate mean, foundation. Oh, absolutely. I am all for eliminating the, the use of these tests, especially since they, you know, decades of research has shown that, you know, they perhaps, the SAT in particular, perhaps tells you about predicts maybe 10% of the variance. That's a very generous percentage uh, variance in first year grades. It doesn't tell you anything about how the student might contribute towards a residential learning environment, how they might contribute towards a commuter campus environment, how they might be as a a leader, what their problem solving skills are like. All these different things that I think are vital to a democratic project of higher education. You know, the Reinvention Collaborative just recently hosted 10 research university teams on the campus of Colorado State University, including a CSU team. And one of the ideas that we discussed, uh, we were driving at what made for the best student-centered research university. And we proposed that folks think about how knowledge is created and what different kinds of knowledge creation epistemologies exist among a diverse faculty at a large research university. And in part of to stimulate some thinking, we offered Audrey Lord's not especially well-known, but really incisive response to Descartes, which in Sister Outsider, she wrote, I feel, therefore I can be free. How do you, as a student of higher education and as a champion for progressive change and ultimately greater freedom and access and democratic operation of higher education. How do you respond to Lord's particular epistemology? Yeah, I, I mean, feel, I therefore, I can be free. really reminds me of my mentor's advice to me to, you know, seek, reflect on my own autobiography to drive my research. And it hasn't taken me in the wrong direction yet. I think that if I didn't feel, if I didn't allow myself to feel deeply about the work that I'm doing, I think I would lose all energy and motivation around research and teaching. You know, I would probably lose my way in the face of things like, you know, I've, I've just recently received an email inviting me to comment. The email was from, I won't name the publication, but it's a very well-known hyper-conservative publication seeking to expose, so to speak, the quote, liberal bias in higher education. But I've seen with my colleagues across the country that regardless of whether they respond to these emails, they get harassed online and in the public discourse. So I'm readying myself. I've been readying myself for this kind of thing, preparing to protect my family for the political attacks that are coming, have already come, that I've already experienced. If I did not, you know, I guess, this is the first time I've heard this Audre Lorde quote, I feel therefore I can be free. But I'm really feeling that quote right now, Steve. (laughs) You know, knowing that there's about to be a really terrible onslaught and attack on my work and myself 
and hopefully not my family, but I'm doing my best to protect my family. Yeah. It's interesting that you make that connection because she was a great fighter, you know, and, and she meant it. You're right. She meant it to, uh, yeah. embolden those of us who are in struggle. And that was certainly her life. And, and she was a great exemplar of what it means and what it looks like to stand up against those who are oppressing others and ourselves. If I didn't feel deeply about the work that I was doing, I mean, this, these political attacks on me and my family would not be worth, like, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to ignore them, right, first and foremost. Um, but if, if I didn't feel so deeply about my work, I would probably say, like, this isn't worth it, and I would do something else, mm-hmm. or I would stop speaking out. But that's just not going to be the case, right? And so because I'm so deeply committed personally, I think that I can be allowed to be more free and bold and just let it all hang out and see how it goes and just do the best I can to protect those I love. So you and your CSU colleagues have recently inaugurated a new center, RISE, which we noted in your introduction. What can we expect from the RISE Center? Yeah, so RISE stands for the Race and Intersectional Studies for Educational Equity. We have a new website, so it's connected to the School of Education website if anyone wants to search for our website. What can we expect? We do, you know, we we take the land-grant mission of CSU very seriously and to heart. And so we really, I like to tell the story about how um, about a year or two ago, I was doing a keynote speech at a public high school in the Chicagoland area. And I gave my talk on something called racial literacy, the concept of racial literacy and how most of us don't know how to talk about race and racism, even though there's tons of research out there. And so, you know, I think it went over very well. And basically the science and the math department chairs came up to me after the talk. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know exactly how they're, I was totally surprised (laughs) pleasantly when they said, you know, loved your talk. We really want to know how we can teach our STEM classes and support our teachers to advance racial literacy in the STEM classes. How do we do that? And I was like, uh, (laughs) I've never taught. K-12, one, I've never taught STEM, two, but however, I have these phenomenal colleagues in the School of Education back at CSU, Danny Birmingham, Vincent Basile, just two of many, who study and have extensive experiences as former teachers in the STEM classrooms in, in high schools and middle schools of how to center questions of racial equity in teaching STEM. And I think that story kind of encapsulates a little bit of what RISE is about, which is, you know, it's great that we as research institutions have so much research to answer these teachers' questions who are on the front lines in our high schools day in and day out, who want to do good and be the best that they can be in teaching and supporting their teachers in their departments in high schools, middle schools, elementary schools, how do they do that, right? So there is a social and public problem out there, pedagogical problem in K-12 that could be not necessarily fully solved, but I think that there's a responsibility that um, CSU is a land-grant university and RISE as a research center as part of CSU can do to be kind of that bridge 
between folks who are doing this daily work, confronting this problem day in and day out, and the research that scholars are doing. To, so, so the mission then of RISE is to facilitate that dialogue and conversation, to problematize and then kind of think about practical solutions informed by the research, right? And to adapt to various local community contexts. So then what we can expect from RISE is we're doing our work on what we kind of call three different areas. One is on a CSU level. So on the campus level, we are convening folks on campus to pursue opportunities, grant funding opportunities, and other collaborative opportunities around how do we address questions of graduation gap on our own campus, uh, pedagogy that is, you know, supporting faculty on campus to teach in ways that are culturally affirming um, for diverse populations. The diversify, you know, CSU is within the next few years is likely going to become a Hispanic serving institution according to federal designation and eligible then for additional federal dollars to support that mission, that objective of being a Hispanic serving institution. What does that mean for our campus? You know, a colleague of mine, Gina Garcia at the University of Pittsburgh, she writes about how she's identified a typology of different Hispanic serving institutions, some that just take the money and run, and and on the other end of the spectrum, institutions that are legitimately taking up that responsibility of being a Hispanic serving institution seriously. I think CSU, let's be that latter type of HSI and not the take the money and run and not really serve authentically the Latinx population in the state and on our campus. The second area that we're addressing with our work is statewide. So going back to that teacher training, you know, teachers in the K-12 setting need to do certification, you know, on a regular basis. Also, the state legislature in Colorado has taken up, I think this is the second time legislators have considered legislation to require high schools to offer curriculum that is inclusive of diverse populations. Are our teachers prepared for that? I, I'm not sure. I think about, you know, the kind of damage that could be done without proper support in teaching content about race and diversity in different ways. And so how then is RISE going to address that gap in teacher support and training and addressing the diversifying population and the educational needs? And so we're going to be test piloting some teacher training programs, certification professional development programs in the next year. So you can look out for that, which is really exciting. We're hoping to maybe partner with the CSU extension so that we have a farther reach throughout the state. So early stages of planning for that, but it's really exciting, I think. And then third on the national level, you know, a lot of my work around affirmative action with the lawsuits I think there's a responsibility for researchers to offer evidence-based, you know, commentary in the media because the narrative, unfortunately, around affirmative action and race-conscious admissions is atrocious and it's been manipulated so poorly that there's just zero evidence connected to conversations around race-conscious admissions today. And so I think we'll be doing some work nationally to support scholars across the country to offer commentary, highlighting their own research on race in higher education, 
And so we'll see how that goes. And I think that's, that's uh, even though one of the cases is, is about Harvard, I remind people that the ultimate goal of Ed Bloom in that case is not necessarily just in the realm of admissions. But if you look at page 119 in the original legal <laughs> filing in 2014 in the SFFA versus Harvard case, you could, the same quote is also found in the SFFA versus University of North Carolina case. Their ultimate goal is the, quote, end of all use of race and ethnicity in educational settings, end quote. Hmm. Right. So this is not, this is going way far beyond admissions. We're talking about ethnic studies. We're talking about cultural centers on campus. We're talking about mentoring programs. We're talking about the vice president for diversity. Reducing that to practically nothing even more, you know, really undermining any kind of racial diversity efforts in higher education. I have colleagues in museum studies who say, you know, as museums, they consider themselves educational settings as well, right? Does that mean that museums that bring up topics of race then and racial diversity then are going to lose out in this case that is supposedly simply about quote unquote, who gets into Harvard. Quite frankly, I don't care who gets into Harvard. 95% of all applicants don't get in. That is not my concern. My concern is a larger principle. Yeah, mm -hmm. so three levels. I'm getting a little heated here. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of things coming forward and we're hopeful that we'll have the resources to, to, to keep the work up. Great. Well, we'll be sure to include the link to the RISE website in our show notes Great, so that everyone can check it out. Do you have any last thoughts for us before we conclude? No, I'm just really thankful that I had this opportunity to have this conversation. On behalf of our members and listeners, Steve and I would like to thank you, Dr. Oyan Poon, Assistant or Associate wow. Professor. <laughs> Congrats again of Higher Education Leadership and Director of the Race and Intersectional Studies for Educational Equity Center at Colorado State University. Thanks for chatting with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We appreciate yeah. it. And thanks to you for listening to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative. Reinventing You is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Reinvention Collaborative, check us out at reinventioncollaborative.org. That's reinventioncollaborative.org. RC members can listen to an extended version of this interview at the member section of this site.